1: Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Carrie Twig understands how storytelling shapes our reality. She's the co-founder and head of development for Culture House Media, a black and brown and woman-owned production company that centers the voices of those who are most marginalized in the industry. Culture House is behind the series Growing Up on Disney+, Plus, which came out earlier this fall. It follows the lives of 10 young adults as they navigate their adolescent years. But most recently, Culture House produced Hair Tales, which is an amazing documentary series on Hulu and OWN, telling the story of Black hair through the decades and features women like Issa Rae, Oprah, and Ayanna Presley as they walk us through their own personal hair journeys. We talked to Carrie about shifting careers, how she started Culture House, and the importance of telling our own stories. Okay, so every show I do have to start out by asking our guest what kind of shoes you have on because the show is called In Her Shoes. So either shoes that you have on or your favorite pair of shoes.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm 100% barefoot because I moved to uh, LA and turned and just went full hippie. So I wear shoes as Love infrequently that. as possible. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I'd say my favorite pair of shoes. You know, I moved to LA in February and I finally only after moving to LA found. Boots that I'm obsessed with, despite years of living in New York and like constantly being in need of boots and having places to wear boots. So there's a pair of Philip Lim boots that I got recently that I'm obsessed with, that are out of like they're just I'm in LA though it's like 90 degrees, 100 degrees, right. and I'm in these heavy uh, hot boots. But say Levy, it's, it's where we
1: are. So what would you also say it's like to be in your shoes
0: in your life at this moment in time? It's a great question. I think I'm in this moment in my life where I ha- am on a, a simultaneous and sort of mirroring professional and personal journey where my first shows are coming out. I've been now um a TV and film producer for the last several years, but it was it's my second career, which is a journey in its own right to like have the actual material goods come out of telling people i'm a filmmaker and tv producer for the last four years and then people immediately asking you like but what show and not having a show to point to uh because this industry moves very slowly which is fascinating um and in my former life in politics and government um but they're sort of coalescing at this moment which i think is a fascinating professional place to be in where some of my old life and my Current life or my old career, my current career are intersecting. But then it also, you know, is doing something for me personally where like I'm feeling more integrated as an adult. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and sort of the varying journeys that we all go through and the varying people that we are over the arc of our life um, feel much more in harmony than they ever have at any other point. I don't feel like I'm running away from anything. I don't feel like I'm trying to forge my path somewhere new or create a new definition. It's all sort of coming into um, some integrity, which is really exciting. Yeah. What was that process even
1: like though, of going from, you know, working in government and policy to now, you know, producing and, and being in such a different space professionally?
0: It feels really interesting. But at the same time, it's it's also really familiar. I think that I am still fundamentally someone who's animated by the idea um, that society can and and must <laughs> change. And for so many years, I did that through campaigns or through policy or through trying to advance legislation or a particular agenda out of the White House. And now I'm sort of doing the same thing through storytelling. I think that if Mm -hmm. we reflect different stories, if we share different stories that are more in keeping with who this country actually is at the moment, right, that's a way for us to be able to seed in the imagination of people what our actual options are, who we can actually be, what this country actually is. And so it's it, to me, it feels like it's part and parcel of the same work, just with really different jargon and <laughs> really different tactics. Yes. Uh, but the mission feels the same. Right. Did you feel like
1: certain skills that you developed, though, in that work have carried over and helped you in this work in any way?
0: I do. I think that You know, when you're when you're working on policy issues or you're running a campaign, you're thinking about huge numbers of people. Right. Politics is a storytelling exercise. And so when you're running a presidential campaign, you're thinking about the 250 million people that are going to vote. And then you start figuring out, okay, like what things motivate which group to participate, to care, to listen, to organize, to mobilize, to vote. And it's not actually that different than when you're serving an audience um, with a television show. Show, right, it's like okay. So if I want, if I'm interested in this topic, um, our new show, the hair tales about Black women and our hair and our journeys, yes, we're gonna get to it. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm interested in making a show on that topic. I need to think about how that will be received and how can I serve the audience and who is the audience and what what do they want to see? What do they want to hear from us? Right. What will be emotional and resonant and impactful and inspiring to them? And so in many ways, those skills really translate. Um, instead of doing them for on behalf of a political candidate, I'm mm-hmm. doing them on behalf of a television series. Yeah.
1: I wanna talk about hair tales a little bit later because I have so many yeah. questions on this
0: too. <laughs> but I want to start with Culture House
1: um and growing up for Disney Plus. Um tell me a bit about why that specific project and what, you know, what were the highs and lows of, of working on a show that's really about young adulthood.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that's one of my favorite origin stories of one of anything we've worked on. Um Brie Larson, the actress director and executive producer of this series. Um, really, we met her and she came to us and basically said, you know, I want to do a show about shame. I'm going through this period in my life where I'm really reflecting on the ways that shame shows up in my life and limits me or creates barriers or obstacles that don't need to be there. And I think mm-hmm. we should have a more robust conversation about shame. And if there were someone who could have told me at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way up to 35, that these aren't things I had to be ashamed of, I might have been freer, I might have been more daring, I might have backed myself or bet on myself earlier in my life. And so we really started with that premise. And we went around as like the group of producers. And we thought about we all talked about the things that we sort of learned that whether explicitly or implicitly that we should be ashamed of or things that made us feel unlovable as we were growing up, even sometimes that we're still working through and still struggling with today. And it's like, what would I have loved to free 13, 16, 18 year old Carrie from? Um, And, and let's, let's talk about that. And how do you make a show around that? And how do you start modeling some best practices around mental health and around care and not just self-care but also community care right Mm -hmm. one of the things that we're really proud of about that show is that it's all centered around a peer-to-peer conversation and -hmm. it's about them each taking turns taking care of one another um Mm -hmm. it's not always enough just to take care of ourselves we all need to be taken care of by the people who are around us as well and so thinking through how we could model that in a show without it feeling like You know, something that they put on VHS and showed you in seventh grade, like gym (laughs) class, (laughs) you know, like, how can you also make it cool and make people actually want to watch it because it's entertainment. It's not, it's not like a educational device specifically. And so that's how that show came to be. And I think one of the great lessons of that show Is that while we made it with young people in mind, it was healing for all of us as individuals. And I think we the response we've gotten from so many people from 16 to 35 and above are just like, wow, I needed that today. I needed that 10 years ago. But like, it's still right on time. And um, I think we're really proud of that, you know. Yeah. Uh,
1: when I think about work like that, though, I, I often think about the fact that people that have come before us didn't even really have the space to be that retrospective or just to be able to really think about uh, what things they would want to change or what things they would want a younger version of themselves to know. Have you been able to reflect on just the the idea that you had the opportunity to do that? Because I think that's also just a privilege um, that our generation is is experienced for the first time in a long
0: time. Absolutely. I mean, I think we felt privileged at every turn um, making this series. And and for us, it was not only how to f- how to recognize and hold on to that privilege and, and and understand that positionality, but also still push, right? Still push mm-hmm. for more and still push for it, be like, this is so great. We're so grateful that you're doing this, Disney. We we are so grateful for your support. And <laughs> we would also, you know, like this to happen. We were also like that. And we also want to push the envelope. We also want to want you to approve this person to participate at a, you know, position that you think might be a little bit more senior than than but we disagree, right? So it was still very much how do we recognize and honor and sit and be present with the opportunity that we were being given but also right. be really clear-eyed that we were given that opportunity because other people pushed Push for it, right? And so then, what do we do in that moment to push for whoever comes next? Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work
1: We have to talk about hair tales because I'm obsessed. I'd heard about it through just media talks so a long time ago and was already really excited. So um been very excited for it to come out for a long time. Um tell us about just the project from the beginning. You know, how did Culture House get involved in, and what was your thinking around wanting to to be on a project like that?
0: Yeah, so The concept is really um, by Michaela Angela Davis, who for a long time had been working in sort of hair and beauty and style and fashion to really synthesize and we love her (laughs) um, and bring together. Um, the scholarship, the artistry, the fashion, the pop culture, and sort of put them all in dialogue together. And so building off of that concept, we worked with Michaela and Tara Duncan, who is now the president of Onyx Collective, Mm -hmm. to develop a show, right? How do you actually build a 40-minute episode off of that kind of conceptual work that um, Michaela had been doing Once that started to take shape, we were able to take it to Tracy um, initially to see if she wanted to participate as an EP. an executive producer. And as that conversation developed, Tracy, who at the time had also just launched Pattern, who has obviously been in this space and lived it from every angle over the course of her life, um, she very graciously wanted to participate as an EP, wanted to participate as a host, and then also really gave us our thesis, which is that for many Black women, you can track their journey of self-acceptance alongside their journey with their hair. Mm-hmm. And once Tracy sort of brought that to the table, it gave a real shape and clarity of vision to the project, um, and we were able to really think about okay, so what does that actually mean? Building on you know Michaela's concept of how do we put in dialogue various elements of the of the ecosystem that are Black women in our hair with that guiding North Star, um, you know, we came up with the show and the concept, pitched it to. Bunch of the buyers around town um, were able to broker first ever relationship between own and Hulu that it would be simulcast on both of their networks. Um, Miss Winfrey, Oprah, obviously, came on as an EP as well, she bought the series, came on as an EP and agreed to be in an episode. So Casual. it was sort of, yeah. Ca- oh, I mean, the the moves of her that are and then the casualness of them. It's I mean, it's the most subtle flex in the entire world. I don't know sports. So I was going to go for a sports analogy, but like whatever the like best <laughs> basketball team of all time, like the dream team, '98 that's Olympics team or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, I'm a
1: lifelong Bucks fan, so we can say the Bucks. Okay, okay. yeah. So that's just because
0: I'm from Wisconsin, though. <laughs> there you go. I love this. I'm a Westerner. I'm from Ohio. Yeah. So. um yeah, whatever. It, it just really felt like the the dream team, you know. And then you have yeah. uh, McLean Thomas working as a consultant, bringing some of her visual aesthetics to the show. Michelle and Deggio Cello being the composer and really helping score uh, the series. All of our guests who were able to participate. I mean, my my own sister is the was the production designer. Like it was just Love that. it was just a full kiki. It was wild. Yeah.
1: Um I mean there's obviously been uh, you know a handful of black hair documentaries what was it about this that you felt like this conversation is different we want people to perceive it's different we want this to just sit in a different conversation in society today
0: Yeah I think there were a couple things I think there's some documentaries that have been very well done um and then there's some that have been done from an outsider's perspective right? And so Mm -hmm. we were really cognizant about, like, whose gaze this is all coming from. Mm -hmm. It is not an anthropological exercise. We're not looking from the outside in at Black women and the choices we make around our hair as, like, Mm -hmm. some anthropological sort of, like, well, why would they do that kind of mystery, right? Um, It was from the very heart of it, and it was a celebration. And I don't think there should be one show about Black women in our hair. There should be 50. (laughs) And for us, it was about adding to the canon of storytelling around uh, Black folks, Black women particularly, and sort of the extraordinary intersection that our hair can be a representation of, right? Of our political lives, of our aesthetic lives, of our community and family lives. And that's what made it so exciting for us. It was an opportunity to work with some of the most fascinating minds and creators that are working right now on a topic that we all at Culture House could talk about for years on end, which you have to you have to actually do because it takes years to make these things. Right. Um, and an opportunity to do it in a way that we felt hadn't quite been done, which for us as makers and creatives is is an artistic exercise.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you said, it was, you know, made from the heart of it and from, you know, women of color who have readily experienced it. Why was it so important for you to, you know, include the really vulnerable stories of people like Oprah and Issa and, all, you know, and Black women in Hollywood of their their own personal experiences in this. And, and I'm assuming it's, you know, because it's a universal experience regardless of who you are. But I'm curious of why that was an important part for you guys to include in the docuseries.
0: It is. I mean, you, you said it, you know, it, it there is a common shared experience amongst so many of us as it relates to our hair, as it relates to how we grew up and where and just girlhood or womanhood or coming of age or whatever you have. And hair is as much a part of that as, as anything else. And so by tracking the journey of Oprah and Ayanna Presley and Chica and Issa and all of these incredible, extraordinary individuals... We also get to remember and see who they were and see what their lives were like and what their struggles were before they were at the vaunted place that they are today, right? right? Doesn't mean that they don't belong on their pedestals or that they shouldn't be held in this high esteem, but it's also really fascinating to hear Oprah talk about rolling down her windows, sticking her head out of it to dry (laughs) dry her hair on her way to like her little job in Baltimore, Yeah, right? I think we all relate to that. And so that's as much, that, that, Experience made her who she is, as much as her, as as anything else. And so, wanting to show that three hundred and sixty a, a, a fully comprehensive and and um holistic view of these women as people is really important. It's not just about the magazine covers. It's not just about yeah. you know the 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 end of the journey. It's about where uh, or the highest moments of their accomplishments. About all the sort of ups and downs that led to the place they are today. Totally. Um,
1: And then, I mean, I was curious also for you, is there a personal time where you felt like you had a very defining, you know, hair tale for you growing up? Is there something that sparked a lot of interest in you, like personally in your own life that you felt
0: like you really wanted to make sure that you guys capture on the screen? I resonate with all of the stories. There are moments in every single episode that feel like they are... Talking directly to me. But I think Mm -hmm. I felt particularly um, aligned with uh, Representative Ayanna Presley, having spent so much of my life in politics and what that, and even Democratic politics, of which the vast majority of Black people who are in elected office are in the Democratic Party. And so I very rarely was in all white spaces. I very rarely was in predominantly male, predominantly white environments. That just wasn't a part of my career um, very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet I felt very much the pressures around respectability politics in my hair and whether or not it would be considered professional and there would be commentary about it. So... Hearing her talk about her journey with Senegalese twists, hearing her talk about whether or not she was going to wear a wig. I don't have alopecia. I've never um, been bald. But the underlying emotional arc of that story, I think, was really deep and resonant to me and tracked alongside a lot of experiences that I have, right? Mm-hmm. The first few weeks before working at the White House, the number of people who asked me if I would, when, when, not if, when I was getting my hair relaxed to go work for Black people, you know, it, it was really, <laughs> it, it was heartbreaking um, and, and both shocking, but also not at all. The particular intersection of respectability politics and Black political life really, really struck a chord with me. Yeah, I think um,
1: in in watching, I was so surprised at just how many intersections there are in the hair journeys of so many different kinds of women of color and, and us not even working in the same industry or doing the same thing. And I always felt like um, it was odd and ironic that in working, uh, I started mostly in fashion publications and you would think that um, there was so much creativity and, you know, just a that fashion is always supposed to be the most forward thinking and free thinking, but it felt very strict and narrow as far as what were the beauty standards still. And I remember very clearly, like I was, when I wanted to start to wear braids for whatever reason, just because I liked them and I was obsessed with Moesha and I wanted to try her specifically, um, that it was such a big deal to other black women that I was wearing braids in the workplace. And I think that was always, then that was something that I really also identified with when, um, I think I thought about it in the sense of that, you know, if you were working around an environment in a space that wasn't maybe as diverse that you would experience that. But I think it's also the same when you are still working with with a diverse environment that they're just beauty standards from the outside world that are inflicted
0: upon us. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was working, I had a job in D.C. before the White House, and I'd f- straightened my hair. I didn't relax it. I just had to, had to blow out. And I walk into an office and a older senior Black man on the team looks at me and goes, oh, thank God. You look so much better. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I've been waiting for you to do that. Thank you. Not you waiting. <laughs> Not waiting. <laughs> Not, oh, thank God. Why? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going to go wet my hair in the sink right now. Like, this yeah. is, this is, I, I don't even know how to, Yeah. And he wasn't it wasn't a you know 70 year old uncle. it was like a 40 no, year old yeah. man. yeah,
1: I think that that's what I think has always been so surprising though and I think I mean that's why hair tells is I think such important body of work for people to consume and to really understand and bring into conversations. So I'm very excited for people to continue to see it
0: um, Thank you.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about Culture House because, I mean, you guys do consult and work with a lot of different entertainment companies. And obviously, we've talked about specific projects that you've worked on. But um, as a whole, you really do work on, you know, establishing a cultural lens in a lot of the work that you're trying to create. What does that work like at large in the industry? Like, have, you know, companies been open and receptive? Do you find that there is a lot of pushback? Do you find that people are on the surface wanting to make inclusive work and then not really what is, what is it actually like as an the industry overall?
0: Yeah. In the beginning of our life at culture house, which we started the company in 2018 and really pre COVID and pre George Floyd's murder, people would look at us like we were aliens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, we're just like, what on earth are you talking about? And then sort of all fell over themselves and scrambled to work with us. Um, because there is such a dearth of of production companies specifically that run production services. So there's a lot of Black women that have production companies in uh, Hollywood. Very few of them actually run from, you know, development to edit and delivery the way that we do. Mm-hmm. So that was it, interesting and welcome, but also sort of sad in its own right, as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and as I'm sure you've experienced, right? Um, and then you know, we're watching that ebb a little bit. And sort of, I think there was a big piece in the New York Times this week about how the push towards diversifying Hollywood has once again sort of uh, started to quietly die a slow death in the background. And while I think to a certain extent that's true in terms of the more kind of transactional um attempts at inclusion, um, I do think that there's just a, there's a fundamental reality that has become clear that the demographics of the country have changed, Mm -hmm. right? If you're under 18, the odds are that you're a person of color. Mm -hmm. Um, the odds are that you're not only accepting of the idea of a spectrum of sexuality and gender, but that you find you can locate yourself on that spectrum, um, and talk about it, right? And so there are just fundamental realities that you cannot escape if you're someone who is running a business in this country about where the audience, where your market share is going, where your audience is already, yeah. and the types of things that they, they want to see. And so I don't think as... I, so even if there is less of a fervor um, for diverse content, whatever the hell, excuse me, whatever diverse means per se, it's not as though the pendulum is swinging fully back. It can only go Mm -hmm. so far because the country is changing and is who we are. And I think for us at Culture House, we really attempt through our consultancy and through just the community that we're trying to build to support as many people's projects as we possibly can, whether Mm -hmm. we're producing it or not, because the healthier and more equitable and inclusive the ecosystem of storytelling is within the context of Hollywood, the better we'll do, right? If The better you do, the better I do. The better Hillman grad does, the better culture house does it's just the reality and so we we really try and make sure that we're centering abundance and centering community and trying to lift all boats as much as we possibly can yeah yeah
1: I mean, and and I think also tying to that, there's always the conversations around who gets the right to tell our stories, who should be telling our stories, and and that point of view. Um, Has your perspective on that shifted as all of, of what you think, you know, does it matter or does it matter if they have the right tools or bringing the right people? Because I think there's obviously so many... Projects being greenlit now, um, you know, since pandemic of trying to be more inclusive. But I'm wondering on your end, do do you find that it actually really matters? Or do you think that it's still um, more inclusive because there's just more people involved than there used to be, probably?
0: I think it absolutely still matters who is making something. I was reading a script today, actually, that, like, I didn't even need to see who wrote it to know that it was a white person writing Black characters. Mm. Um, And it was just like, oh, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let me go and Google this person's name. Well, yeah, right. of course, exactly. Right. So it's still really evident. And and not because they were using the wrong words or it wasn't as simple as that. It was just like who would say that? Like, who would think that? That's like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, It was just this gut feeling, right? Um, And so I think it absolutely does matter. I think what's also really important and that we talked to a lot of our consultancy partners about is making sure that they're giving the same resources to uh, BIPOC creators that they are to white creators, right? right? And so they're giving white writers and directors all these consultants and all these script reads and all this extra help to make sure that they nail this community or they do it authentically or that they represent this, this character well, and they need to make sure that they're giving those same resources to black and Brown folks or queer folks Mm -hmm. or whatever, what have you. Right. It is not enough to have a certain amount of melanin in your skin, if you haven't read a newspaper in the last 20 years, then maybe you're going to miss something, right? right? And like, but it shouldn't be your job. Black people shouldn't have to be political. BIPOC people shouldn't have to be political. They shouldn't have to also wear the... dual hat of knowing how to represent a particular group, even if they're a member of that group, with Mm -hmm. authenticity or with a particular fluency around a set of circumstances or around a political or policy issue in a way that we wouldn't expect white folks to be able to do that either. And so... How many scriptories are they getting? What are their consultants? How many writers are they getting? And researchers, all these types of things, we're really sort of adamant to make sure that those resources are shared equitably and equally. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't make assumptions that just because someone looks a particular way that they have the either inclination or lived experience to solve for whatever a potential kind of pitfall is. Yeah. So. No, I hear that. Um, is
1: there a dream project that you would like to work on or that you're looking for as you're, you know, going through scripts now or something that you haven't done yet that you're like, I'm looking for the right, this right thing and I had, just haven't found it yet?
0: Not really. Nothing particular. I think if I had a really clear dream project, I would just go make it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I. You know, I think me, Ray, and my and Nicole, all three of us, the founders of Culture House, we sort of have a pet project, and I have a pet project about reparations that I'm working on and thinking about constantly. But as it relates, I love to bring up reparations in
1: random regular conversations so oh. I would love to talk about this I bring it up I, all the time
0: <laughs> I can make anything about reparations <laughs> like I could win if, if that were a game I could win it but really when I come across concepts and I come across ideas I'm always looking for to feel challenged like what's my edge of of um, a concept or an idea. Like, what's a way to talk about race or a way to talk about gender or a way to talk about um, identity of any kind that makes me feel a little like, ooh, ooh, okay, now yeah, she feels yeah. old. Like, <laughs> how do I feel challenged? I'm always looking for that. I want to yeah. feel challenged. I'm always looking for what feels like the next generation of a conversation And so many ways. We've been talking about the race race in the same way and so many ways we've been talking about feminism and gender in the same way so I'm always sort of looking for like what's next who's challenging our conventional thinking around these ideas and doing so in an artful cultural forward entertainment forward way that won't make audiences feel like they are at a sermon or at a lecture like people Mm -hmm. know where to go if they want a sermon Um, and we should leave that to that (laughs) (laughs) um And are there any projects that you
1: guys are working on that are coming out or things that you're working on right now that you're excited about that you can share?
0: Yeah. So we're working on, which is super exciting. I'm pretty sure it's announced. I don't know if it's announced where it's going, but we are doing a three-part documentary with Prentice Penny um, about a people's history of Black Twitter. Ooh, that's Which is just going to be fun. That's coming out next year. That's fun. Um, and we're doing something, I don't think I can say a ton about it yet, but we are doing something for the 50th anniversary of hip hop about, mm. yeah. about women and hip hop exclusively oh. about women and hip hop, um, that'll come out next year. Also that I'm, that's going to be great. Very
1: cool. I'm so excited for you and I'm so appreciative to be able to chat with you. Love all the work you're doing. Um, and thank you so much. This is fun. Yeah.
0: Thank you for having me, Lindsay. I really appreciate it. I'm a big admirer of your work. So. Same, same. It's a real joy to be here. In Her Shoes
1: is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening.